0: In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to be talking about cooking sets for canoe trips. What's the purpose of a bivy bag? How to get people interested in bushcraft, dealing with loneliness on solo trips, and how to get to the northern forest. welcome welcome to episode 66 of ask Paul Kirtley with me Paul Kirtley, where I aim to answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft survival skills and outdoor life in general and um, more snow back in the north of England and we've got snow again um, it's again I think it's only going to be brief uh, rain, this afternoon it's quite damp and drippy snow this morning snow yesterday it's warming up um, but yeah I've seem to have recorded more episodes of Aspore Kirtley in the snow than ever before um, and there's potential for more snowy episodes coming up uh, if I manage to fit in some recording on a trip that i'm doing soon so keep your eye out for that but without further ado let's answer the questions for this episode i've got myself under a hawthorn tree here it's providing a bit of cover uh, from the from the wet got some rhododendron on couple of sides here it's quite sheltered got my uh the foam insert out of my backpack down on the ground for a warm insulative mat to sit on again as usual i've got a warm drink i've got one of these trek bars which i quite enjoy no connection um i would be happy for them to sponsor the show of course but that's not what this is about i like these berry burst trek bars i like those for um while i'm out on a walk a bit of energy and uh yeah, just settle in and I will do my best to answer these questions. So, going down in the order that they are in my notebook here. This is from Jason and his question is about how to get to the Northern Forest. Hi Paul, I see you've been on a few Northern Forest trips, but how do you actually get there? I know you could get a plane up north, but then do you just walk into the wilderness or what? Question mark. I would love to go on a trip up north. I'm just unsure how to do so. Thanks, Jason Miller. Um, Well, let's just backtrack a second there, Jason, because a question I also get from time to time is where is the northern forest? I talk about the northern forest. Other people talk about the northern forest or the boreal forest uh, is an interchangeable term. And it is a circumpolar forest that runs from Scandinavia, Fennoscandia, if you like, through northern Eurasia, all the way across Alaska, across the top of North America, a band of forest all the way across. So it's this donut, if you like, of largely coniferous forest, although there are other species there, such as birches, uh, aspens, and various others and also it varies from north to south over its range of latitudes but a lot of pine a lot of spruce a lot of birch um juniper um lingon berries cowberries blueberries or blueberries that type of habitat is what we're talking about and it is the largest forest on earth a lot of people think about the amazon has been huge and it is but the boreal forest is bigger it's like the lungs of the planet in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide it takes on the amount of oxygen it gives out and it is a wonderful environment it's also a harsh environment in many ways it's harsh in winter it gets very cold in many of the parts of the boreal forest and also in the summer it can be very wet Um, underfoot in particular marshy and then you've got mosquitoes and blackfly and those sorts of things so it it, it can be challenging depending on whatever time of year you're there it's easier to get around in a lot of ways in winter because all of those waterways and marshes become potential uh, thoroughfares for you to use skis snowshoes and snow machines but clearly there are risks to moving around on frozen Uh, lakes and rivers and you've got to take that into consideration but it is a wonderful place all of the hot tenting stuff that I've done that you've seen on my blog has been done in uh, the northern forest and it's a place that I've been going to on a regular basis since 2003 Uh, so 15 years at the time of recording this since I first went up to the northern forest in northern Sweden and I've been to the boreal forest many times since both in Uh, winter and in summer as well as in western Eurasia and Fennoscandia, also in North America canoe trips for example in the summer and uh, some forthcoming winter trips perhaps as well so watch this space Um, so it's a great environment bushcraft goes hand-in-hand with that environment Um, fire is your friend um, the classic lean-to shelter is one of the shelters that is most at home in that environment. Quincy's, hot tenting, moving around on snowshoes, moving around on skis, uh, moving around on snow machines, uh, dependent upon what you're doing. And it is just a wild, wonderful expanse of forest. Clearly it's not indestructible and we need to, to look after it as well. And I've written and talked about many aspects of that over the years. Um, in terms of uh, going to do the bushcraft skills that are relevant there but also doing it with some consideration for the environment. Um, So how to get there? Um, Well it depends where you're starting (laughs) but I think um, Jason I I, I get the impression that you're in uh, the UK Um, but forgive me if you're not. um, The nearest easiest place to get to in terms of northern forest accessibility would be northern sweden um, parts of northern norway um, and also finland and it's pretty easy to fly to those places Um, fly to stockholm for example and then fly to the north of sweden you can fly to helsinki you can fly to oslo and then get an internal flight Um, many other routes as well of course there's lots of ways of skinning a cat to get to those to those places to go up to Tromso to go up to Kiruna um, or Jalavara would be a place to to kick off one of those two places or to go up to to Helsinki and there are other places in in Finland you could try flying to as well but it's not that easy it's not that far it's not that expensive Um, and I think you get that Um, the question then is what what do you do next how do you get there well um, you only need to fly into somewhere like Kiruna in the north of Sweden or fly into even Helsinki and you can see that it's surrounded by trees and getting to the forest is, is not that difficult. Um, there are um, providers, if you wanted to do a dog sledding trip, that's quite easy to book. If you wanted to do a multi-activity trip where you get a feel for um, what you can do there you could do a bit of skiing or snowshoeing you could do a bit of um, snow machining some ice fishing build a quincy or an igloo that type of thing you can book on those sorts of trips relatively easy easily um, <clears throat> and you just need to do an internet search for, for that and that might be a way of getting into it if you want to do something on your own it's a little bit harder um, but it's not that difficult in terms of getting transport to uh where you might want to start whether you're getting public transport getting a bus whether you're getting a taxi um, those things are doable most airports in the world have got a taxi rank outside of them uh, even the small ones and you can get a taxi to a local motel as a, as a start-off point if you get there late in the day and then you can get a, a taxi from there or a bus from there the next day to to get to where you want to go um, the question is where you want to go um, and that's a harder one because if you're just going to go into the forest on your own um, that's got some perils to it clearly there is there's issues if you're talking about winter there are issues with cold injury uh, risks there are issues with have you got the right equipment with you it's hard to take everything that you need potentially on a regular commercial flight you know snowshoes or skis um, winter camping kit clearly taking a, a, a canvas tent and a stove is not really possible without Paying a lot extra. Um, so you might end up cold tenting. You might end up, I know some people who've gone and taken a, a toboggan or a polk um, and they've hammocked or cold tented. And that's quite a hard um, introduction to that environment because it can be, you know, minus 20, minus 30 Celsius um, quite easily overnight at least even in you know late february early march depending on the times of year um or or the, the 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 nature of that season some winters tend to be colder than others and particularly in northern sweden recently there's been a lot more variability it seems and as there has been in north america in some places you know we've had a lot of um effects of uh Uh, that some people are attributing to global warming, El Nino effects and all those sorts of things combined to cause some interesting, varied weather conditions. So if you're there in the winter, you've got to be conscious of not getting too wet if it's warmer, not getting too cold if it's colder. um, You've got issues of crossing ice, uh, you've got issues of overflow, water sitting between ice and snow on top of lakes and rivers. There are a number of issues that you need to be aware of um, there's plenty of information on my blog about clothing and equipment and I can link those below this uh, on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash 66 askpaulkirtley66. All the notes will be there or if you're watching this as um, a video on YouTube, the links will be there as well. So wherever you can watch the video, the links will be underneath there. And I'll link to some of those relevant things there. But going on your own in winter is quite hard. Um, you can get up there in summer as well but the mosquitoes can be pretty bad but the fishing can be good um, canoeing can be good in some of those places and um, that's those are some options um, if you want to hike as well then there are some options for for hiking you can start doing uh, some of the hiking trails in Sweden, for example, and that will get you into the forests as well as the hills. So look into things like the Kungsleden, for example, which is quite a varied trail. And there are other trails as well that you could walk that will take you through forests as well as through into the, into the hills. Um, so that might be a, a, an easier way into the environment um, in the summer. Uh, rather than trying to do a canoe trip or what have you because um, most people can walk, most people can walk with a backpack on and then of course you've got the whole North American continent to, um, to look at as well. Easier, easier to organise a canoe trip in a lot of places Canada is the home of the canoe of course, you can do some great boreal forest canoe trips, woodland caribou for example and um, blood vein is a trip that we do, that's all on the edge of the and boreal, the southern end of the boreal, and uh, you know they're the wonderful environments to go to, um, and they're not that difficult to get to once you once you uh, once you decide where you want to go in terms of in terms of canoeing. Uh, winter trips there are maybe a little bit harder, but um, there are still some ways of doing that and. Probably the hardest part of the boreal forest for us as western europeans and maybe north americans that probably the hardest place for us to get to are parts of the boreal forest in uh, russia um, into um, siberia and um, for example that's going to be harder to get to both in terms of logistics as well as paperwork um, but lots of options it's a big place so i would say sort of choose your own adventure decide what you want to do what you're capable of. Um, Ask lots of questions. I mean, there's a ton of people who've done lots of different things in and around the boreal forest. Just ask questions. Get get onto Google Earth, Google Maps, have a look, see where you fancy going, and then Google that place. Google public transport. Google um, adventure travel operators in those areas. Uh, Get onto some Um, adventure travel forums ask some people about their experiences ask me ask other uh, people who've done trips there and you'll soon fill up a good picture of of what you can do with your budget with your capabilities with your equipment time of year you want to go Um, hopefully that helps i know it's not a closed off answer but i don't really want to give a closed off answer like to say you should go here at this time of year and do this thing because there's so much potential Um, so hopefully that's given you some aspects of what you can do and how you might do them uh, without maybe channeling you down something uh, too narrowly loneliness on solo trips this question is from Matthias and he is from argentina and he says hi paul i'm I'm from argentina and i like going to the mountains alone but after a while i start to feel very lonely and it's quite depressing my question is how can you help me cope with this loneliness to extend the time of my bushcraft trips or what you do in your travels to not feel that way any advice will help i think you're the best peace that's very kind thank you matthias um well i'm not a psychologist matthias and i don't pretend to be one um here on these shows or anywhere else um and it can it can feel lonely on trips um i think the isolation on trips can make you feel lonely so i think i think you have to look deep inside and try to understand where that loneliness is coming from is it that you feel exposed on your own because that's different feeling exposed on your own in the wild place is different to missing other people for just company that they're very they're closely allied and they can feel similar but the motivation that where that comes from is different um and i've certainly felt i i'm quite happy operating on my own um you know, very few of these aspore Curtleys when I record them, do I ever have anybody else with me. You know, occasionally there might be somebody set off camera that I'm, I've gone for a walk with. They might be reading a book or they might have just wandered off for half an hour. But usually I would say 95% of the time I'm on my own and I'm out for the day. And I'm very happy just wandering around on my own and being out. And, you know, and I've done plenty of longer trips, clearly longer than a day where I'm on my own, you know, canoe trips, hiking trips particularly. um, And I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine with that. But even on days out, I've had intense feelings of being very much on my own, particularly in the mountains in winter. I've been in some situations in Scotland where I felt exposed and on my own and very small and um, frankly thankful to get back home at the end of the day Um, not because i was taking undue risks or being silly it's just conditions get tough sometimes terrain gets tough sometimes your body doesn't always perform as well as you envisage you get tired etc etc so there are times when you feel like you're out there but then that's part of the reason we go as well part of the reason we go away from the comforts of home and the security of society is to stand up on our own two feet as human beings and feel what it likes to be out in nature as that individual as that person or even group that is uh, self-reliant that is using their own skills and knowledge to negotiate that terrain uh, to be comfortable in that place or, or whatever it is that's one of the reasons we go so the other thing i would look at is what's your motivation for going um, why do you want to go is it is it you have a, a desire to see places is it that you have a desire to be on your own um because maybe the answer is go on, go with somebody else you know if it's like you want to get into nature you want to see wonderful vistas you you know you might want to share those experiences with other people the answer might be find a partner a friend uh, a colleague um girlfriend boyfriend whatever um that is going to be a companion to you on those trips and then maybe that will complete the circle that might be the answer um I don't know you personally, but for me, when I'm on my own and I miss people, I miss loved ones, um, I like, you know, just be grateful that you've got them in your life. I think that's one thing. Um, In terms of having a lot of downtime, I think that can affect people. You know, they're used to chatting to people in the evenings. They're used to maybe even just using the internet and television for company in the evenings, or even just listening to music um in the evenings i know a lot of people don't like sitting in the house on their own or their flat on their own or even in their bedroom on their own without some sort of company whether that's television internet chat room um watching a film uh, listening to music listening to a podcast all of those things provide some connection some company and a lot of people don't like sitting there in the in the in their home in the quiet on their own so equally they're not going to enjoy being out in the middle of nowhere in similar conditions so take 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 an ipod or your phone and some podcasts or some music um, or a book to read um, just the same as you would if you're on your own at home that can be part of it and that's something that i do i'll take if i'm on my own i'll take a book to read and I won't always read it you know I might get into my sleeping bag at the end of the day and think I'm going to read and I'll read two pages and fall asleep but that's fine that's absolutely fine um writing notes I find really good um I often write notes on my trips whether that's in a paper notebook or increasingly um particularly if it's a shorter trip you know as opposed to weeks and weeks and weeks I might just use my phone um I've got an app on my phone where I can write notes and then it's accessible on my on my laptop or my desktop when i get home so i don't have to then transpose things or um, scan them or what have you to make sure they're saved in the cloud or that they're in a rough form to start writing up a trip report or what have you writing notes is good it helps you process your days it helps you remember things um, it helps solidify memories it helps you focus on what sh- what's important the other thing is you could journal about how you're feeling and, and try and get to the roots of why you're feeling a bit lonely um, and equally maybe maybe you just don't need to be out for that long maybe maybe it's you your brain your unconscious brain telling you that okay i've, I've got what i've needed from this after, after a few days ready to go home and i'm grateful for the things i've got at home like i say i don't know your circumstances but i would in the first instance have a think about why you're going what it is that you're trying to get from your trips not just practically you know physical exercise or what have you but you know mentally psychologically uh well-being wise what are you trying to get from your trips think about whether or not you'd be better off sharing that with somebody directly by having somebody with you um and think about whether or not you're mistaking a feeling of isolation from a feel, with a feeling of missing people. Because, yes, they're close together, but they're also different. Um, and that's as much as I can think of off the top of my head, Matthias. As I say, I'm not a psychologist. Personally, I'm happy on my own. But that isolation, that exposure can sometimes get to you um being grateful for what you've got at those times is a is a big help definitely thinking about the people you've got at home your friends your family loved ones your dog or whatever that you're grateful for having those relationships you're grateful for that helps definitely all right it's starting to rain rather than just drip how to get people interested in bushcraft right I can finish eating my trek bar while this plays
1: hello Mr. Kirtley it's Adrian Spring with another question for the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast Um, my question for you today is this Paul Uh, I love nature I like being in nature we are nature Um, and I love bushcraft it's part of who I am now, I've tried to spread the good word of bushcraft, uh, the true essence of bushcraft, not a kit, um, but I seem to have a, quite a stony reception. And I was wondering, how would you go about spreading or trying to get inter- people interested in bushcraft? Um... Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because most of the people I speak to it's it's quite stony ground (laughs) to be honest Um, any help you can give me I'd I'd be very, very grateful for keep up the good work, you're a fantastic guy you're a brilliant ambassador for British bushcraft and long may you continue, thank you
0: well thank you for that Adrian gave me time to finish my my trek bar and pour some more coffee. Well, <laughs> the facetious answer, Adrian, is how would I get people interested in bushcraft? I'd dedicate 15 years of my career to it. Uh, I'd write a blog for seven or eight years, um, start a YouTube channel, start two podcasts, write for multiple magazines in the space as well as outside of the space Um, (laughs) which is exactly what I've done (laughs) Um, I think the question is what would I do if I were you Um, I think it's sometimes easy to be too evangelical about certain things and that can put people off and i think you always need to tread a line between enthusiasm and being a bit too uh, too much of a evangelist in the bad sense of that word there are some bad connotations to that clearly you know people sticking their foot in your doorstep in your in your door standing on your doorstep wanting to proselytize that side of evangelical behavior is generally from most people not welcome and i think if you're challenging people's ideas about a certain subject you need to carefully tread between putting them on the defensive because they feel like they're being criticized or they feel like they're building blocks of their ethos if you like are being undermined and giving them new insight and i think you always need to to try and be helpful rather than try and convert um i think if you're just trying to convert people to your religion as it were religion in inverted commas then maybe you're going to end up with resistance whereas if you can say hey look my approach my understanding of these things here yes i've got this knife yes i've got this billy can yes i've got this tarp but look how well i can use the knife look how well i can use a fire to do what i want to cook in this billy can look how well i can put this tarp up so that i'm always comfortable um and you don't even have to say that it's how you do things when you're around people who are good in the outdoors and you're not completely unaware of your surroundings you can say you can look at somebody and kind of go that guy has got his stuff together this person's all over the place a lot of people talk a good game and then you see them in the woods and you think yeah you you've been on a lot of forums but you haven't been out a lot but when somebody's been out and they've got the their basics down, they know what they're doing, you can see that. You can see that in camping in the woods, you know, f- fly camping with a tarp and a fire and a roll mat or what have you, a blanket, through to you know, people winter camping, tents in the hills, how they set their canoes up, all of those things. You can tell when somebody's experienced, they got their stuff together. Just the way that they dress, the way that they hold themselves so some of that's non a lot of that's non-verbal and that's one way you can influence people and then they'll be like ah, oh, you will find people being attracted to you because you're good and then that makes them more open to what else you have to say the other thing is is just sh- sh- you know if you want to show them aspects of nature have all those basic kit things down have an understanding of how to sort your water how to light a fire all those things but then be very very good with your understanding of nature and being able to practically do that while you're out with them because again if you can say to people oh this is edible this is um, did you know you could use this Um, here's some tracks of a whatever just engage them with the nature rather than telling them to be engaged with the nature draw them in show them interesting stuff um, give them some practical takeaways all of that draws them into your way of thinking they're like oh yeah i like i like what adrian can do while he's out i want some of that that's the way to do it not by sitting in the pub after four pints banging the table trying to change their mind (laughs) i would say is probably the way that i would be doing it hopefully that helps and if anybody's got any other comments Particularly experiences where they've introduced people to bushcraft or they've introduced aspects of bushcraft to people who had a fixed idea about what it was in the first place and then able to expand. Leave a comment below this on my blog paulcurtley.co.uk forward slash ask 66 That will take you straight to the page. Scroll down, comment section, leave a comment would love to hear from you as i'm sure adrian would he's a regular viewer and listener to this show and if you leave a comment for him he will undoubtedly see it right i'm getting wet a little bit now let's get on to the next question what is the purpose of a bivy bag and this isn't as cynical a question as the title might give you the first impression of being Um, this is from Phil, Phil Schaefer, and he asks, I've never camped without a good weatherproof tent. So my question is, if the tarp keeps the rain and weather off you, what is the purpose of a bivy bag? Thanks, love your videos, Phil. So he's not even having a lot off about the do tarps keep you dry <laughs> comments. He is genuinely asking, and that's a good question. It's like, what does a bivy bag do? Um, so, it does help keep your sleeping bag dry, not necessarily from atmospheric moisture that's coming from up there. As you say, if you've got your tarp set up correctly, the water's going to run off, the water's going to run away from your tarp, not under your tarp. Don't sleep in a dip. We've talked about that before in previous videos. Water runs off, goes away. Some people will say, well, rain can come in the side if it's really windy. Yes, if you're right on the edge of the woods, on the windward side, and it's absolutely chucking it down, and you've got your tarp set high, some rain may come under the side of your tarp. In which case, the bivvy bag's going to be useful. If you're deep in the woods, where it's sheltered, and you don't need to move that far into the woods. I've had students on courses move 50 metres from where they were going to set the tarp up to where I suggested they should set their tarp up. And it's made a big difference in how sheltered they've been. And it's not about lots and lots of you know hiding behind a big evergreen bush like a rhododendron or what have you here. It's about looking at the lay of the land, more trees to dull the effects of the wind, and then you get water dripping rather than coming sideways. And then of course you can lower your tarp a little bit if you need to, or have a slightly bigger tarp for the colder wetter months of the year, just if you want some more room. But remember, the ground can be wet as well, like I'm sat here, this ground is really wet. Um, It's been raining, then we've had snow, then we've had rain on top of the snow, the snow's melting, it's dripping off the trees, the ground is sodden. So putting your sleeping bag inside a waterproof bivy bag is going to stop it coming into contact with any moisture on the ground, which is important. There is atmospheric moisture just in terms of humidity. It's going to protect your sleeping bag from humidity as well. To an extent particularly if there's a heavy dew overnight which in the spring and the fall there often is you get warm daytime temperatures but cold nighttime temperatures you often get a heavy dew during the night and into the early morning it will settle on the outside of your bivy bag rather than on the outside of your sleeping bag and then of course if you want a bit more room underneath a smaller tarp if you're traveling light You've got a smaller tarp, say like the smallest silicon nylon tarp that I've got, that little integral design, the SIL TARP 1, which is about the same size as an Australian Hoochie, maybe very slightly smaller, or about the same size as a a British Army basher, um, but very light, very small. Um, If you're under that sort of size tarp, if you're in a bivvy bag, you can stick your feet out the bottom, it's waterproof, your feet. The feet end of your sleeping bag is not going to get wet but you've got more room above you for kit and just a bit more room to manoeuvre so it just gives you a bit more room so it is useful in terms of moisture in all of those circumstances then what else does it do it stops your sleeping bag from getting dirty. Even if it's completely dry, it stops your sleeping bag from getting dirty. Dirty sleeping bags don't work very well. Sleeping bags keep you warm because of the loft, because of the air that's trapped in them. And the dirtier the uh, goose down or the dirtier the synthetic fill in your sleeping bag, the less it will loft, the more it will mat, and the less air will be trapped in it and the colder it will be. So it's imperative to keep your sleeping bag as clean as possible. Put your bag on the outside, And if it's not too impractical, which it sometimes is in really, really cold temperatures, have a sleeping bag like a silk sleeping bag liner inside to stop grease uh, and dirt from you going into the sleeping bag from the inside. So keep your sleeping bag clean, that's important. What else does it do? Um, Two more things, and that's again to do with insulation. One is it stops the warm air that's trapped in your sleeping bag being blown away being replaced by cold air if there's even a bit of a draft um, a bivy bag is going to be more windproof than the sleeping bag like it's like wearing a Gore-Tex jacket over the top of a um, duvet jacket you're going to get more wind protection from doing that so it's it's not just a waterproof cover it's also a windproof cover which keeps that warm air inside the sleeping bag and not being displaced by a cold draft Allied to that is it also traps air between the sleeping bag and the bivy bag which means that you've got another layer of insulation there potentially and importantly the cold air that's in contact with the outside of your sleeping system is not in contact with the outside of your sleeping bag it's in contact with the outside of the bivy bag so you're once more removed from the atmospheric conditions so it gives more warmth to your sleeping bag in that way as well finally most bivvy bags have got some sort of hood which means that you've got a place to put your um, if it's not rolled up completely just laid out on the deck laid out on the ground whatever you're using as a pillow can be laid on top of that and it acts as a kind of ground sheet as well for what you've got and if you pull the pull it up a bit more then that's going to be trapped inside but it keeps it from the ground as well so if you're using a fleece um, for example as a pillow it's not on the ground it's on the inside of the bivvy bag so sleeping mat bivvy bag inside the bivvy bag sleeping bag on top of the sleeping mat inside the bivvy bag gives you a nice warm dry clean environment for all of your sleeping gear and that's why a bivvy bag is really good under a tarp you can also use a bivvy bag in a tent we won't get into winter camping stuff snow holing whether it's quinzies whether it's snow caves in the mountains bivy bag super useful as well for protecting your sleeping bag for many of the reasons we've talked about in a tent though why would you use a bivy bag well again it adds more warmth and also what if your tent gets completely soaking wet Um, some people will put a, a ground sheet on the inside of their tent and i know um Cliff Jacobson is a big advocate of doing that. Um, he advocates rather than putting a ground sheet under your tent, put a ground sheet inside your tent as a kind of second bathtub layer. And that's probably a, a better way of doing it than putting the ground sheet outside where you're just going to be sitting on top of water. You've actually got some protection on the inside and also some protection for the base of your tent from all of the things that you do inside your tent, moving around, moving gear around, etc., etc. Um, so that's about water coming into the tent and a bivy bag would help in those circumstances as well if the ground if the if the the bathtub part of your tent got water into it for whatever reason the other way your tent can get wet on a trip and for the types of trips that i do canoe trips if for whatever reason you get water in your portage pack and you get water into your tent and it's sopping wet if you've got a bivy bag that you can put your sleeping bag in even if the inside of your tent is wet your sleeping bag will stay dry i always double bag my tents these days anyway but even so it's just an extra bit of protection um What can happen with tents as well, if you're putting camp up and down every single day, I tend to use Hilleberg tents and I tend to have them set so that the inner part of the tent is constantly attached to the outer part of the tent. It makes putting them up very quick. It also means you put them up in the rain and the inner doesn't get wet before you manage to put the outer over the top. But what can happen if there's a lot of condensation on the inside and you don't have time to air the tent off before you have to be on the move, you roll the tent away and you put it up again in the evening if if you don't have the right conditions to dry the tent at that stage you might end up with a bit of moisture inside your in your tent um, maybe even within the uh, sleeping area and again a really lightweight uh, bivvy bag is useful for those circumstances you can just slip your uh, sleeping bag into it and um, you're not going to get any moisture into your bag particularly if you're using a down bag i like to carry a snug pack uh, special forces bivy weighs very little packs down to nothing you can check my lightning the load part one video to see more on that um, see how small it is and how light it is but that's the one i like to take just so that i've got it with me even if i'm in a tent it's just an extra little thing and then if you decide you want to sleep out under the stars as well with your sleeping mat and your sleeping bag you can do it you've got lots of options so lots of reasons to have a baby bag but the fundamental ones under a tarp first section of the answer right i think we're on to the last question cooking sets for canoe trips oh it's another audio question Right, right let's go ready
1: hey paul i just wanted to ask you what is your recommendation as far as Um, canoeing trip um, uh, pots or billy cans or canteen sets. I currently use a uh, heavy cover titanium uh, kit set um, and it doesn't always meet every uh, specification or trip that I guess I'm uh, taking it out on. Um, or need so just kind of curious what do you use what steel Um, do you prefer aluminum stainless titanium Um, do you prefer a pot or billy can or canteen set Um, i'm just curious i have uh, various different ones and different um, brands but just curious what you recommend um, and what's kind of your go-to for just general water purification um, boiling collecting etc thank you
0: all right so that's from Good question nice and clear there thank you um, good diction there I like it good um, yeah that's quite an open-ended question and um, I too also have lots of different options and I've also used a lot of others um, from outfitters for example um, you get different things from different outfitters um, It depends on how many people you've got with you, for starters, whether it's just you on a solo trip, whether it's you and a friend, whether it's three or four of you, whether it's eight of you, you know, it it varies what's gonna work and what's efficient to take with you. Um, You tend to be able to carry more elaborate kitchen sets the more of you there are, because you can cater for a lot of people um, from, a certain number of pots in a way that you can't cater for yourself from a from a a number of small pots if if you see i mean there's an economy of scale is what i'm trying to say with carrying a wider range so it kind of depends on how many of you there are and also how elaborate your meals you know are you just using boil in the bag you know backpackers pantry um, mountain house uh, you know dehydrated type stuff and you just need boiled water or do you want to cook more elaborately Um, So that's part of the question, but I think your question is particularly about nested sets and canteens and whatnot. Um, Some of the titanium sets are good. Um, One of the things with titanium is it's light and it's tough, but it also tends to, it doesn't really hold the heat, and you get very direct heat transference in certain places and it can be hard to cook steadily in them i like them for backpacking Um, i use titanium cooking pots for backpacking when i can um, particularly if i'm covering any sort of distance you know if i'm just going to do four five six seven miles in the woods and camp i'll just take a you know take a stainless steel billy or something and again if you're just keeping it to one stainless steel zebra billy can there is a uh, uh, uh an economy there and if you're using a fire you know and you're not carrying a stove yeah stainless steel billy is fine you can boil your water you can cook your food etc etc um if there's a few of you and you're backpacking nested titanium set works quite well if you work if you're working off a stove um if i'm doing a canoe trip i tend to like to take stainless steel uh, pots with a bale Um, and i tend to like to take stainless steel pots that are broader and a bit shallower so more of the type that Coleman, uh, Tatonka, um, Eagle Products make than say the zebras that are taller and thinner because yes you can hang them over a fire with the bale you can make a pot hanger, tripod, whatever you need hang them over a fire but also sometimes on a canoe trip as I'm sure you know um, Esmir you you can't have a fire there's a fire ban or it's not appropriate to have a fire where you're camped for, for whatever reason or maybe you it's just it's quicker to use a stove sometimes or you might just need to get a, a, a quick quick boil on one of your friends is cold you've just got into camp they're shivering get the stove on get some water get some get hot chocolate into them or, or, or whatever having a stove with you is something that we normally do even on even on a, a solo trip i will take a small gas stove i may not use it at all um, so for example the river tay trip that spoons and i did last year we took a stove And the only time we were really gonna use it was the first night (laughs) and the pump broke um, and we had to have a fire anyway. Um, And then I bought a replacement on the way and we didn't use it, we used fires the whole time. But I like to have something with me just in case. Um, But one, so I like to have pots that will work on top of a stove, but also work well on top of a fire. And for the type of cooking that I like to do on canoe trips, I find the slightly broader, slightly shallower pots very good. Whether it's for uh, mixing up a bannock mix, whether it's for boiling water, whether it's for uh, cooking a stew, um, whatever it is, um, I find that I can manage to do that. So some some sort of nested pot set. Um, as I say, I think one of the fastest boiling ones that I found are the Eagle Products pots because they've got a copper bottom and they just absorb the heat super fast, boil really quickly. Well, sometimes take a kettle, um, a small uh, kettle. The smallest Kirtley kettle, for example, is two point five liters. That's good for a couple of people. You can boil water in that. You can set it by the side of the fire while you're doing other cooking, and you can manage to to fit it in. Um, with some bigger pots as well. I'll sometimes also take a frying pan with a folding handle, normally one of the GSI frying pans because um, they're relatively easy to get hold of, the non-stick pans, they're relatively easy to clean but generally I don't like non-stick pans and I'm not a huge fan of hard anodized pots and pans, I've used them a fair amount, um, I get by okay with the morse pot that I use in the woods which is a hard anodized aluminium um, my bcb hard anodized mug has lost a lot of its coating now after several years of use Um, and i find them harder to clean than just pure stainless steel you can't damage stainless steel you can't You can't wreck it, you can can scrape it with gravel, you can get sand in there, you can get ash from the fire in there to cause a bit of a sort of caustic um, washing mixture, which with fat almost makes a a bit of a soapy mixture. You can get the things clean in the field without damaging them. Whereas I find non-stick surfaces, apart from frying pans um, and hard anodized surfaces, just harder to maintain the cleanliness in the field without damaging the surface. And um, that also has an impact on hygiene. If you're not cleaning your pans properly, yeah, it's not good over the long term. You'll end up, end up with some issues. So good quality stainless steel, broad, uh, shallow, good quality bale, preferably one that locks so you can tip it without it going all floppy. Um, and as I say, the ones that I've used that I find particularly uh, good uh, are Eagle Products, Coleman, and Totonka so hopefully that helps Asmir. and also just to finish on that that's kind of scalable you know you can take a couple of nested pots for a couple of you and it'll probably do you you know the, the, the kit that i took on the tay trip for me and spoons for example eagle products pot had a smaller Coleman pot inside it um we had a billy can rather than the kettle uh, mainly because we were just going to drink coffee so we had a billy can for making a coffee a, a morse pot for making coffee and we had a frying pan a folding frying pan so we had like a kettle if you like or, or a coffee pot two nested pots and a frying pan but you could also cater for four people with that same set you wouldn't need to scale it up at all for four people once you get beyond that you'd have to start Um, extending it but then you could also start you know if there's eight of you you can start thinking about do i take an aluminium dutch oven and then we can do roasts we can do um, we can bake bread we can make lasagna we can make uh, cottage pie Um, we can uh, do all manner of different things that you can do with a dutch oven that you can't do bake a cake miss and Ivy trip last year we baked it was their birthday on the last night we baked them a cake um you can do that with a with a dutch oven um and there were nine of us on that trip so we had the sort of nested pots we had a kettle um but we also had um a, an aluminium dutch oven which served a lot of purposes and gave us a wider range of foodstuffs over that trip which was nearly two weeks long than we could have if we just had a basic cook set so that's something else to think about as well but basic nested set stainless steel you won't go far wrong with that right that was everything so got my phone in my pocket good um starting to get dark now although it won't seem it on the screen because i've got the um the auto level thing set on so it it, it adds a bit of boost um it will get more grainy of course as it always does but uh, you can hear me just as well and that's what's important it is drizzling now the snow's melting as i as i see it it's going and um, it's wet it's damp it's a bit cold i've been quite comfortable here though i've got a merino base layer on um, i've got a fleece got a nice wool loop stitch merino hat double layer and i've got this uh, norina recon jacket fjallraven uh trousers which are a little bit damp now because the whack they haven't been re-waxed for a while what else have i got on i've got my lower boots with Gore-Tex lining the old ones they're coming to the end of their life now they're starting to leak a little bit some nice thick icebreaker socks and i'm cozy i'm comfortable here hot drink bit of food all good it's only two degrees celsius today um so yeah it's been a good session um hopefully that's useful to many of you thank you for the questions please do subscribe please do uh, share this with your friends as i've said before the best way that you can help me with these shows and with everything that i do going back to what adrian said as well how do we spread the word well we spread the word if you can share these shows if you can share other material that if you find a particular blog post on my blog that you think is really useful to you there will be other people in your network that also think it's useful so if you could share it down with your friends on facebook a group that you're a member of your followers on twitter whatever it is that's most appreciated that's how you can help me um, with the material that you like um, me producing Um, that's the best thing you know i'm not interested in patreon or paypal deposits or what have you Um, i have a business And it works, and I earn a living from it, and that's good. Frontier Bushcraft um, is my training company. And if you're interested, eh, it's there at frontierbushcraft.com, and that's how I earn my living. Obviously, a little bit of advertising on the YouTube videos, but largely, if you want to help, if you want to give back a little bit, just share the stuff. That's all I ask. Thank you very much, and keep the questions coming. And of course, between now and the next Aspore Kirtley. Enjoy the outdoors, but stay safe. Take care. Cheers.